Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The Diane Ream Show has been a fixture on public radio stations and WITF for years. But when Diane Ream retires at the end of this year, a new program will make its debut. It's called 1A and will be hosted by Joshua Johnson. Johnson was the co-creator and host of Truth Be Told, a radio series about race in America, and spent five years as the morning host at KQED in San Francisco. 1A with Joshua Johnson will debut January 2nd and can be heard here on WITF. Joshua Johnson joins us here on Smart Talk today. Mr. Johnson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Good to be with you. And if you have a question or a comment for Joshua Johnson, the new host of 1A, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. I have to say that normally I wouldn't ask a guest to introduce themselves, but uh, you're no ordinary guest. Uh, You'll be coming into the homes, cars, and offices of uh, central Pennsylvanians every day. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a, a public radio journalist, been in public radio for about 12 years. I am a native of South Florida, grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida. I went to college at the University of Miami, worked at WPBT, which is the PBS station that created Nightly Business Report. Worked for six years as an anchor reporter at WLRN in Miami before leaving for San Francisco to go work at KQED as the morning newscaster. I also taught journalism at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. I taught podcasting. Actually, because I'm here in Washington now and the semester is ending, my students and I did our last class of the semester last night via Skype, which was not exactly what we expected, but it went really well. So I'm just somebody who has always had an affinity for broadcasting, always wanted to be on the air, and found a home in public media. You know, I, many people in our business uh, aspire to go to Washington or New York or on the West Coast, San Francisco or L.A. But uh, having worked in Miami and San Francisco, and now you're going to be in Washington, uh, you know, I don't know how long you've been there, but uh, are you looking forward to that? And what does that bring to the program? Oh, yeah, definitely looking forward to it. Now is a, I know it sounds crazy, but now is a great time to be in Washington. There's tremendous opportunity for journalists who want to be part of this historic moment, this kind of epical shift, to influence it by providing news and information that's useful, that's illuminating, that helps provide more light than heat. So yes, this is a, this is a really great time to be in D.C. I know there's a lot of uncertainty, but a lot of what 1A will aspire to do and what we're building here at WAMU is to speak to this moment in a way that continues to further what public radio audiences have come to expect from us. The timing of this is, of course, fortuitous with Diane Reem stepping away from the mic, but the moment could not be better, I think. So it's, it's a thrill. It's a real thrill. And I want to talk about that moment a little bit later, but uh, first, you kind of touched on this a little bit. A description of the show. 1A aspires to be the most important daily conversation about the issues of our time. The show will take a deep and unflinching look at America, bringing context and insight to stories unfolding across the country and the world. 1A will explore important issues such as policy, politics, and technology, while also delving into lighter subjects such as pop culture, sports, and humor. All right, let's break that down a little bit. How does 1A become the most important daily conversation? I think the main thing that 1A has to be is a safe space to be heard. Right now in this country, everyone seems to be engaging one another with clenched fists and sharp elbows, 
And we're trying to create a space that reaches out to people with open arms. Diane Rehm has done a wonderful job over the last 37, 38 years of creating civil conversation, and 1A will build on that. We hope to continue that and go even farther by extending from being civil to also being welcoming and making sure that people who believe that their silos are safe have an incentive to come out. Now is a moment when the nation really needs to engage, and that engagement may not always be friendly or pleasant or chipper or cheerful, but for us to retreat to our corners and stay there is probably the worst thing that we can do in this moment. So we will continue providing excellent analysis, deep context for the events of the day, civil conversation for sure. But part of our mission is also to help draw people out of their corners and say, no, really, there really are still safe places where all of us can come together and say what needs to be said, and more importantly, where we can come together and know that we will be heard and will be treated with respect. We already have an email here, Joshua, that says, I've heard Joshua Johnson on the Diane Reem show, and uh, this listener says she is in love with this guy. Uh, So you already have at least one. Now you have to build on that a little bit here in central Pennsylvania. But that's a good endorsement right off the bat. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's awesome. And whoever you are, thank you so much. That means a lot. (laughs) I I, want to jump around a little bit, but uh, what you've been talking about a little bit uh, and you know without actually uh, coming right out and talking specifically about the election of Donald Trump you know that is you know what is what is so historic and why there is such an opportunity in Washington to open our arms and open our minds and talk with the different people I want to read you and this is a quote from Diane actually Uh, she was quoted in the Washington Post um She said, we're all going to have to learn to listen in new and different ways, better and harder to those with whom we may not agree, those who are different from us, who may not even be aware of public radio, those who feel they have not been heard. Uh, We who've been in public radio for all these years thought we were being broad and bold, but now we know that we've been speaking with only a small portion of the electorate and the population at large. We have to do better. So... First of all, do you agree with that, and how do we do that? I do agree with it. I think that we have done a good job in public radio of growing our audience over the last 45 years since the first edition of All Things Considered aired in 1971. We've really become an institution in the U.S., and we have built a tremendous audience of wonderful people who are smart and caring and and influential. We have to continue doing that in this moment. I think part of the way we do that and part of what we'll do at 1A is leverage technology that's available. You know, for example, reaching younger audiences. There's been research that shows that younger audiences engage with a lot of their news in text form, in what we would consider print. So we'll be very active online, not only, you know, in in text articles, but also on Twitter and Facebook. And we, we have a senior editor, Gabe Bullard, whose whole focus is on our digital strategy. That's extremely important to allowing people to share what they receive without having to listen to the whole show. I mean, asking someone who's never heard the show and who doesn't listen to public radio to sit for an hour is a very tall ask, but they might read an article, and that's fine. We'll engage with people wherever they are, however they are. That's one part of it. The other part that I'm also very passionate about is in getting people to really get people in their circle to give us a shot. It's true that we preach to the choir a great deal. One of my great 
missions is to turn some of these choir members into evangelists and go get someone who needs to hear what we do and say, you missed something. You missed a great show. Oh, my goodness, they talked about this. They explained that. They got to the bottom of this. You should have heard this discussion. You should have heard this debate. This thing that we were arguing about yesterday, remember, you asked me and I didn't know. Well, 1A had this guest on and they had this conversation, and now it makes perfect sense. I'll send you the link. You've got to hear this. We need people who listen and who love public radio to evangelize for us, to be influencers, and to let people know that the mission we are on has not been given up on. We haven't failed. We are making progress, but we cannot succeed unless listeners who love what we do tell other people about it and bring them in. You know, but and I'm getting back to uh, the, the the Trump election, and it's been analyzed since November 8th uh, so much because it was such a surprise for so many people across the country. But it appears as though, you know, one of the things that we've heard about and it's described different ways, the silent majority, that white working class that feels that the media is part of the elite. Do we have to reach out to those people and show them that we are not the elite, that we are listening to those those voices? Yeah, I think we do. You know, I think, you know, the stated mission of NPR is to create a more informed public. And public means everybody. So, yes, we absolutely have to reach out to to everyone. I think that there is something – I think that in the media we have to own the fact that we are elite, but we need not be elitist. You know, when you are in a position to have access to movers and shakers who will talk to you just because of the company you work for – and when you have the ability to show an ID and walk onto a crime scene and get information from the public information officer, that's a very elite status. That's unique. You, you have, I mean, you, I mean, you don't have special status under the law, per se, but you are in a very unique role. You have an elite access to information and news. The key is to make sure that we don't judge our audience based on how much of that information they know, share, or respect. We have to maintain an equal level of respect for all people, regardless of whether or not they agree with us, like us, or even know that we exist. That's what we have to do in addition to reaching out and actively contacting and and engaging with people who are outside of our blind spots. That's what 1A will aim to do, again, partly through our our social media strategy, is finding ways to target people in, in parts of the country and in communities and demographics that maybe public radio doesn't reach very well, and then also just being honest and being humble within ourselves and saying, well, what are we not seeing? Who are we not talking to? What, 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 what critiques are we hearing from the audience that we need to take to heart? So it's a multi-layered solution, but yes, absolutely, there's always room to grow the audience. There's always room to welcome more people. Tom, one of our listeners, uh, sent us an email, and this is very similar to what you were just talking about. Uh, The current media landscape has become poisonous with opinionated rhetoric. I'm not a Trump supporter. However, this media acts as if they want Trump to fail. How are you going to create a genuinely intelligent discourse? Well, there are a few ways we can do it. Um, First, I think one of the main ways that we can do it is through the kind of journalism that we, we put out there. There is so much more to know. There's so much more to discuss. There's so much more to explore than just the things that divide us. A lot of what we'll do on 1A is explanatory. It's just demystifying and debunking information and making 
all of this make more sense. For example, a lot has been made of Steve Bannon, Donald Trump's chief strategist, and his ties to Breitbart.com, the connections to the white nationalist movement that called itself the alt-right, and so on. And a lot of people were very upset that Steve Bannon was going to be the chief strategist. Well, what is a chief strategist? What do they do? How much power do they have? Is it a figurehead? Do they write legislation? Who in Congress do they interact with? What has a chief strategist ever done that actually affects me today? I would love, I would have loved to get three chief strategists around the table and just pick their brain <laughs> about what they do. Because you can have an opinion about Steve Bannon, but there's always room to grow more. There's always room to know more. And those kinds of conversations where you hear the topic, maybe you hear the promo on WITF and go, yeah, what does a, I don't know if I can answer I want to tune in for that. Like, that's the kind of conversation that people don't show up to with arguments. They show up with questions. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of conversation that puts everybody on their heels. Because you know what? I don't even know the answer to that question. I would like to know myself. I think the way that we set up shows, hopefully, will incentivize people to show up with their willingness to grow, with their willingness to learn, which we know public radio listeners right. already have. And it gives people a chance to start with questions. Then, once they have more information, then the calls might start trending toward opinion. But if we give people a chance to learn as opposed to a chance to fight all the time, I believe public radio listeners are good enough people that they'll say, yeah, that's something I'd like to learn. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Joining us during this portion of the program is Joshua Johnson, host of the new program 1A. It will debut on WITF and across the country on January 2nd. If you have a question or a comment for Joshua Johnson, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. And we will take a call or two in uh, just a moment. But one thing I wanted to follow up on, uh, Joshua, is, and and again, I quoted the Washington Post, same article, another quote here. Uh, And this is from the Post, the reporter who wrote the article said, as a younger African-American man, Johnson may help NPR expand its appeal among the younger male and racially diverse listeners that public radio has struggled to attract throughout its history. Now, you've touched on this a little bit, but when we're talking about not just diverse of opinion and thinking, but when we're talking about demographics, uh, a younger audience, a more racially diverse audience, how do you do that? Well, part of it, I think, is being mindful of how people normally interact. You know, I would not talk to someone who doesn't talk to me. I'm not going to waste my time chasing someone who isn't even walking toward me. I think if we want to reach people, you know, we have to act like it. We have to try to engage. Part of that's hard because, as we discussed on Truth Be Told, those kinds of engagements can be scary, especially if you don't quite know what to say or how to say it. One of the goals we had on Truth Be Told that we also have on 1A is creating a space where people can talk to one another, and if they should happen to say the wrong thing, they won't be afraid they're going to get their face ripped off for making a mistake. Part of what we have to do is just risk that. We have to be willing to say, in some cases, you know, we'd really like to engage with you deeper. We're not sure exactly how, but we would like to, because it's part of our mission to serve 
the whole public. We know we haven't done this well, and we want to improve on it. As a matter of fact, last night at this station, WAMU in Washington, we had our community council meeting, and one of the big topics for our community council was diversity and the fact that WAMU's audience does not completely or accurately reflect the D.C. metro area as closely as we would like it to. This partly just involves saying we would like to talk. That's one step. Another step is just diversity of ideas and interests. I think a lot of younger and diverse audiences are a little turned off by the fact that a lot of what they hear on public radio is very much geared toward, you know, the A section of the New York Times, world events and national events and politics and international crises and business and Wall Street. And we lose out on a lot of other topics like culture or sports. Now, granted, this is not going to be a show about who's up and who's down in the rankings, and it's not just going to be about the latest gee whiz, ain't it cool tech trend, but there are aspects of pop culture and technology and sports and the media and entertainment that reflect our culture back to ourselves, and those things are worth engaging with. There are thorny topics around race and diversity that are worth engaging with, and I think my past work in Truth Be Told and before that as well as just the ethos of public media, this growing willingness among stations like yours and networks that provide public radio content to engage in this, bodes well for us. We're, we're, we are of a single mind that this has to get done. So I have faith that we can engage with this in ways that may be messy, <laughs> that may not always be pleasant, but that will be productive. Now, you hosted a program that focused on race. Why is it difficult, so difficult, for us in America to have a legitimate, a good conversation about race? How often have you heard, have I heard over the years, okay, we're going to have a conversation about race, but we get to a point where we stop and don't go any further. How do we have that conversation? Well, because conversations about race are about the, they're about the sin. You know, race is often considered America's original sin. And conversations about race are conversations about what is wrong with us. It's much more productive, I find, to deal with race directly in the context of the common humanity we share. The point of talking about race is to get to our common humanity. It's not to talk about race itself. Race is this issue. It's this filter that colors our ability to see the common humanity in us. That was what ultimately allowed the country and the press to, with one voice, say, oh, you're not the alt-right. You're white supremacists, because we hear what you're saying. You're saying that this nation belongs to whites. It does belong to Okay, got it. No. Okay, thank you. We're, we're rebranding you back to what we know you are. But having that conversation allows us to get back to the important piece, which is our common humanity. I, I think, I can't rec recall exactly who it was, I'm guessing it was someone like Mother Teresa, who said that she would never go to an anti-war rally, but she would go to a pro-peace rally. I think the idea is that we have to focus on solutions. That's another thing that 1A is going to be very focused on, is how do we solve the common problems that we face? And we'll be bringing on people who may not have solved the problems, but who may be making headway in ways that bring forth solutions that may be applicable to other people's situations. So I feel like the conversations we have to have about these thorny topics always have to have a clearly stated goal in mind. On uh, Truth Be Told, our clear goal was to foster empathy. That was the mission of the show, to foster empathy. 
and conversations about race or class or religion or any other topic, in my opinion, have to be governed by a goal that is larger than exploring the problem. The goal always has to be to hunt for solutions. Mm. Let's take some phone calls. Uh, Jim is in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Uh, hi. Uh, hi, Joshua. Welcome to uh, WITF. Hi, Jim. Thank you. I've, uh, I have been a, a huge fan of uh, Diane Reem, uh, listening to her show regularly, and I'm looking forward to listening to your show. I'm sure you know that you have big shoes to fill. For sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me make a comment and ask you a question. Uh, I understand that uh, that, that uh, WAMU is, uh, is 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 trying to attract younger listeners, and, and that's great. I, I think I think it's very important for the future of public radio. But it's also important that you not fundamentally change what you're doing, uh, especially with the new administration and the changes that have happened. Uh, the, you know, I listen to public radio and public TV because I care about the truth, and I, and I want straight reporting not reporting with an agenda like, like on some of the uh, cable news outlets. I, I think that it is still important to, w- while being respectful, emphasize the truth and uh, the difference between truth and uh, opinion and also emphasize that facts matter. So that, that's my comment. I have a specific question, and that is, uh, for a lot of people, I think all over the country, the Friday News Roundup the two hours, the national hour and the international hour have become appointment viewing, and I certainly hope you're going to keep those. So that's my question. Are you going to keep those? Thanks, Thank you. Jim. Sure, Jim. I appreciate the – I'll take the second part first. Yes, the Friday Roundup is staying. Uh, we, we may spruce it up and do it in a slightly different way, but we are going to continue doing the Friday uh, look back and look ahead to what the news of the week may portend for the week to come. Per your comment, I agree that – Truth matters, that facts matter, that will not change on 1A or any other program from NPR. I mean, I, I, I can't really say now more than ever the facts matter. The facts always mattered. And we, don't, we do not live in a post-truth era. We may live in an era where more people feel emboldened to be wishy-washy with the truth, but in an era where, where information is as ubiquitous as ever, and where misinformation is as ubiquitous as ever, truth is ever more important. So that will not change, ever, especially not on my watch. I have a couple of emails here, Joshua. Uh, my wife and I are concerned that public radio speaks to much of the same areas of the country that voted for the Democratic Party. While you are speaking to more of the people by doing this, you're not speaking to more of the country. Look at our election map. Hillary won many more votes but lost much more of the country. Um, one thing I will say, okay, well, his question, his final question is, how will 1A speak to the country and not just to the people? Let me just add, just because of background, kind of a background here for WITF listeners, that actually here in central Pennsylvania, uh, we actually have more Republican listeners than we do Democrats. Now, part of that is that this is a heavily Republican area. But I interrupted there, Joshua. How do you answer uh, Manuel's question? Well, it's funny. I'm looking on the computer here in the studio at the list of stations that airs the Diane Reem show, and I see Gadsden, Alabama, 9 to 11, Boise, Idaho, 9 to 11, uh, let's see, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, Reno, Nevada, I see Ada, Oklahoma, I see Salt Lake City, Utah, Blacksburg, Virginia, I mean, Texarkana, Texas. We are airing in a lot of places of the country that 
are presumably not the kind of places that listen to public radio. They do listen to public radio. I mean, public radio has n- more than 900 states. Actually, I believe it's about 1,000 stations that blanket the country. And granted, now, to be clear, stations have to choose to take public radio programs. So just because they took the Diane Reem show does not necessarily mean all of them will take 1A. It's, it's they have a choice to make. But we the, rely on stations to make a decision that this kind of conversation will benefit their audience. Part of it is in continuing to operate in the vein of the Diane Reem show and advance on that. But also part of it is in the decision of stations to say, yeah, we want to be part of creating this, this national conversation. So it's a partnership. It's, it's, it's multiple pieces. We're really glad that WITF is, is a piece in that puzzle. Mark emails us, says, uh, you already touched on this a little bit, but what does your guest think about the way in which the media is currently being portrayed by President-elect Trump as dishonest, as well as the confusion that has been created regarding fake news? How do you ensure being regarded as a trusted and unbiased news source with listeners is the reputation of the media being eroded by this negative rhetoric? Well, in terms of fake news, fake news makes me absolutely furious. It makes me crazy. Uh, I think it makes all of us a little crazy that we work really, 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 really hard to tell the truth and that people would begin to share information from an unknown, unreliable source and act on it. The shooting here in Washington uh, recently at Comet Ping Pong Pizza, which is not too far from WAMU, by a man who wanted to investigate this lie online that's known as Pizzagate, shows that words have power. I mean, Aristotle once said, when storytelling goes bad in society, the result is decadence. And we have to guard against that. We have to make sure that we continue to do our jobs well, that we use the tools that these online fake news sites are using, that we use those tools better than they use them. We have to beat them at, their, at our own game. And it's our own game. It's not their game. They're trying to play our game, but they can't do what they do without the bedrock of good information that we provide. Think about it. If we were in a society that had a bedrock of reliable information, the unreliable information would have no place to cling to. It would have no foundation. So we have to keep doing what we do and do it better than ever. I try not to worry about what the new administration is going to do because I can't control what other people do, presidents or otherwise. I can control what I do. And we at 1A can control the kind of work that we do and put that out there. I am not afraid of competition. Um, I'm not afraid of tension. You know, Martin Luther King, in his letter from a Birmingham jail, wrote about a kind of tension that is necessary for growth. This is a growth moment for journalism. This is a chance for us to go into this challenge, challenged, and come out of it stronger on the other side and hopefully reaffirm the value of what we do And it's also a chance for us to rewrite our contract with the public. Like, we've never really gone to the public and said, hey, what do you expect from us these days? What do you need? Do you know who we are? Do you know what we do? Do you know what our limitations are? This is a chance for all of us as a society to reengage and figure out what the media need to be going forward. But we are not abdicating ground. We are not giving one inch of ground on the need for this nation to have reliable news and information and to have a welcoming space for everyone to talk about that reliable information. Have you put in a request yet to interview the president-elect? I think we have. I think so. So if you were sitting across from Donald Trump today, what would you ask him? Oh, boy.
boy. I'd actually, <laughs> I know. I, I thought the same thing during the campaign, that if I had an opportunity, I, I, I don't know if I know where to start. I think the first thing I would ask him, and I would ask him this with no attitude. I would ask him this honestly. I'd say, Mr. Trump, who do you think you are? I would want to know how he sees himself today. I want to know what he conceives of his life as right now. Who do you think you are? He seems to be a lot of people right now. He seems to be a deal maker. He still seems to be a candidate. He seems to be a president-elect. He seems to be a firebrand. He seems to be a lot of things. I would love to know if he went to an airport and someone didn't know who he was and said, oh, what do you do for a living? How he would answer that question. I want to get at his state of mind and how he's viewing becoming the president of the United States. I would love to ask him about his cabinet, about the people that he is installing, and how very different they are from cabinets past. I would love to know what makes him think he has the moral legitimacy to bring the nation together after a campaign that has been so very divisive. I would love to know details about his policy, much of which he has not released. Um, and I would, I would kind of love to know if he's concerned at like what his primary concerns are. And I'd like to know what he would like the nation to do for him. You know, presidents don't govern in a vacuum. And, and I, I'm not asking him to do a JFK, ask not what your country can do for you kind of thing. But I would love to know, Mr. President, I am a citizen and you work for me now. But I'm also a citizen and, and, and I'm part of this democracy. What would you ask me to do as an American citizen to help you and your administration succeed? I would like to figure out what the way forward is. Joshua Johnson is the host of the new program 1A. It will debut January 2nd here on WITF and across the country. Hey, I enjoyed our conversation here today. Didn't even get a chance to ask about the name itself, but maybe we can do that in the future. Joshua Johnson, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Human skeletal remains were found in the woods of Cumberland County last weekend. The bones are estimated to be, have been there for about two years. Cumberland County officials will try to identify the remains. Now, this is a nation of more than 300 million people, and those bones could belong to anyone. So how are remains like this identified? Who will assign them life? to this scattering of bones. Graham Hetrick has served as Dauphin County's coroner for 25 years. He's participated in 3,000 autopsies and certified more than 13,000 deaths. He's an avid student of thanology, the study of death and how passings impact people and society. He lectures on grief counseling and hosts the coroner I Speak for the Dead on Investigation Discovery Channel. Graham Hetrick, welcome back to the program. Hi there. It's good to be here. It's quite a resume. Uh, it's a long one. It is getting longer, too. It's 20-some years long, 26 years long. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Before we get into talking about uh, the remains found in Cumberland County, and I'm not going to talk specifically about that, but how you go about identifying them, I want to talk a little bit about the TV show, because this is the first time you've been on Smart Talk since uh, the TV show uh, began airing, yeah. and I have to—I t- I told you beforehand—I I watched all the episodes. I love the show. <laughs> Thank of course, you. I was very familiar with almost all of the cases that uh, that she, that you profiled. What kind of experience was that for you? Um, it's—it was bigger than what I thought it is, uh, was uh, going to be. 
it's uh, when you do a nationwide show, plus it's now in England and Europe and South America and places as far as Serbia, um, it, it, <laughs> it does give you a lot more exposure. Uh, I was really, number one, I was, I was really pleased with the relationship I had with Discovery. Um, they allowed us to show the teamwork and the science, and I think the stories were told respectively, respectfully. And uh, that, that's the big thing. I also write a blog for each episode, and uh, you can find that on uh, ID Discovery, and it'll send you over to my private blog, which is uh, GrahamHectric.com. And those are more in-depth commentaries. And the other thing I did is I created sort of like the uh, the layman's glossary to forensic terms. And that's been fun doing that, too. What terms don't we know? Well, in this case, with the uh, bones, we're talking about physical anthropology and, to an extent, archaeology. Uh, one thing that happened in that particular case is uh, for over, well over a year now, uh, Charlie Hall from Cumberland County, who is the coroner there, and myself worked together. Uh, we back up each other. And uh, you always want to work your strengths and staff your weaknesses. And so back and forth, for instance, he does a lot of alternative light stuff. I've done a lot more bone stuff. And uh, we needed manpower because it was on the top of a mountain, cold, <laughs> and uh, the brush was amazing. A, a hunter found these mm -hmm. the skull. So now you know it's a human when you see the skull, or at least most of the skull. And so I went out with Charlie and uh, um, started looking at bones crawling around in the woods. And they were drugged in a very... Uh, large area, mainly because I believe of uh, bear interaction up there. Mm. That's something that uh, when bones or remains are found, uh, you know, that, that have been there for a while, mm -hmm. that, that that wildlife, and especially in a rural area like that, that wildlife is a, is a real problem. And I know that, you know, one of the things that you do often, uh, okay, maybe not often, I'll let you say it, whether it's often, but that like insects, for example, have yes. been used to determine uh, the time of death or how long remains have been there, correct? Yeah. As a matter of fact, down at Harrisburg University, Dr. Fury and I maintain a uh, uh, a colony of forensic beetles to clean off the bones. So it works What, what do you do? How do you do that? Uh, you just put the bones in there and they, they clean them off. So it's uh, the, one of the benefits of that is they never eat the bone, the beetle. So if there's uh, tool marks from a weapon or something like that, it's uh, you can safely say in court, well, we didn't make that mark. You mean so these are flesh-eating... Or yeah. tissue eating beetles. Yeah, they're they're beetles that are it would be out in the wild in the natural process. You go from first flies, then fly eggs, then maggots, then pulpi, and then after all that work is done, the beetles start to come in, and they finish up the process of taking a, uh, a human being as well as environment a human being down the skeletal remains. Now in this case, they were skeletal remains, but the uh, um, there's a lot of information that be, can be gained from a skeleton. 
The other thing is the state police called in uh, Mercyhurst College, mm -hmm. and that's uh, Dr. Dirtmack up there, who is a physical anthropologist. Near Erie. Yeah. Yep. And he's also one of the, uh, uh, he also has a subspecialty in archaeology, so he can map things out very well. And uh, he was up there, uh, I think, at Sunday and Monday we worked at. But uh, there's a lot of information to be had, and uh, now it's just uh, the detective work of who is missing and applying that data from the bones to who is missing and then trying to look for dental records, DNA, all those sort of things. Right, I want to get back to these beetles for a second. Uh, if I encounter one of these beetles in the wild, they're not going to eat my finger off or anything, are they? No, they only like necrotic tissues. Oh, good, good, good. That's good to hear. You're not necrotic That's yet. Not yet, no. I'm getting closer to it every day. You know? But uh, all right, so let's walk through the process. The bones are found by the hunter. Police right. are called. You're, Charlie Hall's called, you're called, uh, all these people are investigating. Walk me through the process. Well, of course, you work as a team, and it, we had a large search area, a very rough area. And uh, so we started working through that, and then eventually uh, Dr. Dirtmack also brought a team of students and himself uh, from, uh, from Pittsburgh, or no, Erie, and uh, we just continued to collect. I was there for uh, a good part of Sunday, and then I left, and then the, as the other team came in, because it's a manpower issue, um, uh, Dr. Dirtmack found additional, uh, I think, uh, femurs, more of the pelvic girdle, the jaw, which is very important, the lower jaw, the mandible. Why is that? <clears throat> well, uh, for instance, I do uh, facial re-sculpting. You know, mm -hmm. something like that. If you don't have the jaw, you can't do a realistic sculpting. Mm -hmm. So it, it's important that way. So it's a, all, all, all bones. There's 206 bones in a body. We'd love to have them all. We're not even close to it here. But we do have very important things, such as the teeth. In the teeth, we mm -hmm. can compare with dental records. So uh, in that way, plus the position and the mapping out of where the bones are, tell us... Uh, for instance, what, what animals were in play here. And there are a lot of bear in this area that we were in. And I I know that there are certain things about the case, this particular case, that uh, you can't talk about. So I won't ask you whether you know if it's a homicide yet or not, because that right, information no. hasn't been released. But one thing that I've heard you say before is that when you are investigating a case like this, that homicide is like one of the first things or maybe the first thing that has to be ruled out. Why? The, uh, our rules that I, I have interns every every year and either myself or Dr. Ross will say what is, what's the first rule in medical legal death investigation? We say rule out homicide, rule out homicide, rule out homicide. So that's the first threshold. So. Um, what you do is you test hypotheses, and that's what good science is. You take a hypothesis, and then you try to tear it down. If it falls, then you go to the next hypothesis. So homicide, suicide, accidental, natural. 
Mm. Now, many often, many times often, I'm, I'm sure you can tell right from the scene and knowing what's going on, uh, you know, if there are witnesses and, you know, depending on what the, right. the death scene uh, was, whether there's possibility of a homicide or uh, a suicide, for example, or natural causes. But in a case like this, what do you once you get these bones, collect the bones, collect all the evidence that is around there? Then what? Well, then everybody as a team looks at it, and there's various parts of the team. As as Dr. Dirtmack is working uh, on his uh, physical anthropology in the bones, and as we look at another thing called taphonomy, the way bones, mm-hmm. the way bodies decay. And what's left? What's the timeline? So then you get timelines. We even will be looking at uh, what the vegetation was like there two and a half or three years ago. So you get all this data together, and then the uh, the raison d'etre comes up, the reason for what we saw. First, we document. Everything was photographed, documented, and and, and then... The next thing that comes up is why. Why is the skull there? Why were the bones over here and these bones over there? That's called that's called the scene reconstruction. The first one is processing it. Then you reconstruct. And then from there, you start looking for leads through some of the major databases that we have, such as CODIS, which is a, a DNA database. All right, let's let's talk about. Uh, you, you said that um, you know the study of death, but I want to go through. There's a place in, I believe it's Tennessee. I've been down there. I know you have, and that's what I want multiple to, times. To, to describe it. What is it? It's hard to believe. It was started by a Dr. Bass, who's in his 80s now, and I have met him uh, twice. A remarkable man, but at <laughs> the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. He wanted to understand taphonomy or the study of how bodies decay in different ways, in, in rooms, out of rooms, hanging, buried, in cars. And uh, so he started studying with uh, bodies that were unclaimed by ME's offices um, how people decompose and how we can learn from that. And he started what they called the body farm. He never called it that. But yeah, I, I can't imagine he would actually, have put that on his. It logo, was somebody you know? in press <laughs> in, in the press that did it. It sounds article. like a, a media yeah. thing, yeah. And and uh, it, ever since it has been called the body farm, uh, it is interesting to note that the uh, the university has the largest collection of modern human bones in the world, and uh, it's simply because of all the years of this body farm. Now there's multiple body farms. I know there's one out in Texas and uh, so, several other locations. But it is good to be able to study. I've taken his courses down there and they're phenomenal. What do you learn? Well, first first you learn about the, uh, the anatomy and the identity of bones because you have to figure out whether they're human or not human. And um, what what bones can tell you then secondly, uh, you have to learn about the recovery. How do you recover this stuff and have it, number one, in a chain of evidence, but have it effectively not damage the evidence? And then uh, 
the process of actually cleaning bones and identifying each one of them, measurements that can give you stature, it ranges, but stature of an individual, race of an individual, um, uh, pathologies of the bone that would be very identifiable if you could find old x-rays, that type of thing. Can you, uh, and I imagine it, uh, it depends on the bone or bones that you find, but how easy is it to determine, uh, say, sex, male or female? Of a... That's pretty easy. Why is that? Well, pelvic girdle, number one. Okay, I'm, I'm, but again, yeah. I guess what I'm picturing is yeah. you don't have that. Well, we yeah, we only have a portion of the one that's there, but we did have the the skull, uh, the skull in this case, and it is a male, so I mm -hmm. can say that. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the more the easier things. What about race? Um, that, in my opinion, is uh, much easier now than when I was first trained by Elizabeth Gatliff and and some others in forensic sculpting, and mainly because um, today, show me a pure race. In other words, uh, uh, myself and my wife is Mexican-American, so any kids would be a blend of both, you know. And as the world has just opened up, I think there's much more blend. So it's it's a bit more difficult, I think, to look at uh, 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 Asian or Negroid features and, and say, uh, this is exactly what it is. But uh, there are there are markers. Mm -hmm. Um you you called yourself a bone guy earlier in the program, yeah. <laughs> and again, very often uh, when someone finds uh, some bones in in the woods, for example, a lot of times you look at it and say, "Oh, that's an animal," but that skull, as you said in this case, uh, yeah. told you right away that it was a human. Uh, how easy or how difficult? How much of a challenge is it? Again, depending on the bones you find, to yeah. tell whether it's animal it or human. It depends whether it's a fragment. Uh, and some bones can be very confusing. Almost every year, I get a, a call from state police or somebody saying, "I think, I think we have a killer that just cut off the hand of a human being." And uh, I said, "We'll take a picture of it now." With, digital phones, right? Right, right. They take a picture of it, send me down, send it down to me, and uh, I'll say, well, bring it down. It's it's good enough to bring down, but I'll look at it. And invariably, in almost every one of these cases, not all, but in almost every one of them, it's a bear paw that's been stripped of its uh, fur and nails. And it is so close that even in the almost the Bible of medical legal death investigation, which is uh, Fisher and Spitz. Uh, that, in that book, they have a full-page picture of a bear paw and then a ra radiograph of a bear paw. And you can see how similar they are. It looks like a hand. See, I th most people would think of, okay, the, the nails. I said, well, why but, are they, the nails? Well, they're, they're the gone because whoever killed the bear stripped all the oh. fur off, and they, they cut off the hand so they could... Uh, work to get that, that bare rug type thing. Right, right, yeah. And and so when they strip it off, the nails come off. But the, the I learned claws. something here today yeah. that uh, bear claws or paws, not the claws, yeah. look uh, very much like humans. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about this before, about how the science, the, the CSI-type programs on TV, that a lot more people are... Uh, interested in your profession, um, 
is that a good thing? I mean, are, have we made advances, and, uh, the, and is it a good thing that more people are interested? I think they're interested, in, but I had this uh, conversation with Dirtmac because we both teach at universities, and uh, he's the real bone guy. Yeah, you have to understand what a coroner is. <laughs> I'm sort of like a conductor of things, so I know a little about a lot, mm-hmm. but not as a conductor, I can't play the first violin. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I know a lot about it, and I know a good first violinist, <laughs> and that's the same thing here. Uh, Dirt Mac, this is his specialty. This is what he does. And uh, so he's very good at it, but I know enough to say, that's a bear paw. <laughs> <laughs> Dirt Mac could probably tell me how old the bear is. <laughs> you proud of yourself after you say that's a bear paw? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we only have a couple minutes left, and Graham, it's always nice talking to you. But I'm sure that uh, for those who watch the, the show on Discovery ID, uh, they want to know if there is a second season coming. And I, you may not be able to talk about it, but... Uh, the only thing I can tell you is that the first show was a breakout, and breakout shows do well on TV. <laughs> so. you, uh, how big was your audience? Um, at, at times, it would, uh, in, in most cases, actually, it was about a million, two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned to me, and this is not a surprise, that uh, after so many people have seen the TV show, that you're getting emails, letters from people asking them to yeah. investigate a death. Tell yeah, me that. about that. Well, it's very difficult because uh, many times those deaths uh, or the inquiries are because they just can't accept the right. existing death itself. So part of this, you mentioned about thanatology, the other study I have, which is the psychological understanding of death. And uh, a lot of these people are trying to work through their own grief. So... I try to get back to them, but uh, <clears throat> this has become bigger than what I thought as far as answering them. So I have almost like a format letter that explains that I can't work through different municipalities. I have I'm on I'm on a cold case team as it is now for my own area, and uh, and plus I would have to bring people together of different skills because it's not me it's the team are there like freelance uh, investigators out there i mean uh, granted what you're describing all over the place all over the place okay yeah so and 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 many times uh, they'll consult with uh, attorneys i've done consulting with attorneys and investigators on what a threshold analysis is but i'm just looking at where the whole thing and saying maybe we should look here and there. That's mm-hmm. all. Graham Hetrick is uh, Dauphin County's uh, coroner and uh, the TV show on uh, Discovery ID. He talks to the dead. That's uh, that He tells you right up <laughs> in the title what he does. But Graham, thank you very much for being with us today. Sure. Nice being with you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, Ben Allen will be filling in for me tomorrow. <laughs>